Hi, my name is Glenn Walter. I'm president of the Friends of the Knox County Public Library. Today's speaker is Nisa Dolan Brown, associate director of the Baker Center, and she will be discussing the book The Death and Life of the Great American School System How Testing and Choice Are Undermining Education by Diane Ravitch. Thank you much. Um, this is off the subject, but I, I do want to point out, I have been a member of the Knox County Library. You all are wonderful. I mean, it is the best library to be able to download, to rent the DVDs. We have the best library, so thank you much. To tell you a little bit about myself, uh, I came to Knoxville in 1973, freshman at UT from my home state of West Virginia. I wanted to get away from snow, and so this was a nice southern place to come. Um, graduated in architecture with a degree in uh, uh, historic preservation and worked in that for a while, but eventually came to work for the uh, University of Tennessee and have been there for now 29 years. I worked mainly in continuing education, got a master's in that, and then went to the Baker Center in 2003 when they started and have a doctorate in higher ed administration and policy studies. The opinions that I profess here are totally mine, not the, the, those of the Baker Center. But in the Baker Center, I do work with um, all of our student engagement programs. We have a Baker Center learning community for incoming freshmen, Baker Scholars, and Baker Ambassadors. And the whole point of having these programs for students is to get them engaged, get, to get them to understand, to question, to learn about democracy and our republic. Our author today is Diane Ravitch. She was a big proponent of No Child Left Behind, but she has had a change of heart in 2006 and has totally changed her opinion of the legislation. She is a research professor of education at New York University and a historian of education. Her Ph.D. is from Columbia in history. Um, from 1991 to 93, she served as Assistant Secretary of Education under Lamar Alexandra in the Bush administration. From 1997 to 2004, she was a member of the NAEP, the National Assessment Governing Board, that gives the federal test. From 1995 until 2005, she held the Brown Chair of Education Studies at Brookings Institution. Before entering this government service, she was adjunct professor of history and education at Teachers College, Columbia. She's been the author of numerous books, has quite a background in education. This is her newest, uh, published in 2010, but then updated in 2011. The Death and Life of the Great American School System, How Testing and Choice Are Undermining Education. She also wrote in 2007, Ed Speak, A Glossary of Education Terms, Phrases, Buds, Words, and Jargon. In 2003, The Language Police, How Pressure Groups Restrict What Students Learn. Left Back, A Century of Battles Over School Reform in 2000. In 1995, National Standards in American Education, What Do Our 17-Year-Olds Know with Chester Finn in 1987, The Schools We Deserve in 85, The Troubled Crossroads, American Education, 1945 to 1980, published in 1983, The Revisionist Revised in 1976, and The Great School Wars, New York City, 1805 to 1973, published in 1974. And as I said, this book looks at her complete reversal um, on the No Child Left Behind. Um, before we talk about the book, a couple one of the things I want to ask you just to keep in mind as we're talking. I want you to think about when you were in elementary school, high school, college, 
Was there a teacher that really impacted you? What made them special? What was different about them? Um, what about your own education? Do you think you had a good education? What about if you have children, what about their education? I mean, were you happy or do you see our schools as failing? Just keep that in the back of your mind. Amazon describes this book as a, quote, passionate plea to preserve and renew public education and a radical change of heart from one of America's best-known education experts. She begins the book with a look at the report probably you've, everybody has heard of, A Nation at Risk. This was done back in 1983. President Reagan commissioned it after there was another report that said our students are performing horribly. I think it was from 1960 to 1983. The scores had really dropped nationally and, and internationally. And so the, the report that came out really advocated for hot, more rigorous standards for high schools so that when they graduated, kids going to college would not require so much remedial work as they were seeing. It also recommended competitive salaries for teachers. It recommended that we do more for students who were poor or had disabilities. Out of this group, a, a national standards campaign. What it did not recommend is really what we see today, accountability based on test results, running education like a business, getting rid of teachers' unions, school choice vouchers, and closing schools. The report, actually, that started this, I just found out recently, I had never heard, was also disputed. So even the facts that generated the 1980 report, and I see some of you nodding, were later uh, disputed. And it seems like a lot of research... You know, one research study disputes another research study. And you really have to look carefully at these results. So there was a, a kind of a, a beginning to look at national standards. We'd have a national curriculum that all schools would fit. But then um, Lynn Cheney with National Endowment for Humanities brought up the point that she did not feel that the history standards were all that they could be. And there were some issues, from my memory at least, with a lot of political correctness and so on. So that kind of killed the whole national curriculum um, focus. And in that vacuum was born the test-based accountability. Ravitch leads off in her book looking at the miracle of District 2. This is in New York City. It was an area that included Chelsea and Soho and East, Upper East and Lower East Sides and so on. The um, district superintendent in 19... Uh, 90s was Mr. Alvarado, and I may be pronouncing them wrong. He adopted a balanced literacy curriculum, and he required all principals and, and teachers to adopt it. If they didn't agree with it or didn't like it, they were quietly moved to another district in the city. But it took a lot of professional development. It was a maybe somewhat controversial, but it used whole language as well as phonics in teaching reading. And I'm not even going to try and display it. You all may know more about this and can explain it. But the point is that the district, at the time he started this program, in 1987, the District 2 had 18,000 students. Let's see, the statistics were 26% were white, 15% African-American, 24% Hispanic, and 34% Asian. 20% had English as a second language. However, by 1990, it was 5% African-American, 10% Hispanic, 13% Asian, 72% white, and it was wealthy. The average income for a family in 1990 in this area was $150,000. In New York City, the average was 62000 They had seen these great test scores rise, but when the researchers began to look at it, 
they did not look at the fact that the now was a much more affluent neighbor. This information didn't come out till the 2000 census came out. So it was not discovered for a long time. So in the meantime, Alvarado is now hired away, and he goes to San Diego to do the same thing there. And San Diego had had real problems. They hired a prosecutor to be the superintendent. He had no education background. His name was Bernson. And he brought in Alvarado expecting, you know, quick results. So uh, he hired and fired a lot of teachers and principals. He hired 90% of the teacher, uh, principals uh, using this new – and he also, I'm sorry, used uh, the curriculum that Alvarado had had success with in District 2. However, he wasn't – at least I infer he wasn't quite as nice about it. They did require all teachers and principals to go through extensive training. It cost a whole lot of money. And if they didn't agree, then they were fired. And so 90% of the principals were fired. Teachers, of the 9,000 teachers, one-third were replaced between 1998 and 2005. And they began leaving in droves. So uh, what they also found during this period, the scores did rise slightly in San Diego. But in other areas of the state, they did much better. So it wasn't a proven solution. Bernson's replacement as superintendent was Carl Cohn, and he stated, and this is on page 66, uh, let's see, I inherited a district in which the driving philosophy over the previous six years had been to attack the credibility of any educator who spoke out against a top-down education reform model. These attacks allowed those in charge to portray themselves as the defenders of children, to justify any means to promote their model of improving student achievement, and to view their critics through the same lens of good and evil that has characterized many of our national debates. Such an approach, he cautioned, was counterproductive. In San Diego, it produced a climate of conflict that only now is beginning to improve. Any genuine school reform, he argued, is dependent upon empowering those at the bottom, not just punishing them from the top. All right, then we move from San Diego back to New York City. One of the other reform ideas in in all this is to have mayors take control of the schools, take the schools away from the educators. So in New York City, Mayor Bloomberg had been elected in 2001, and he got control of the schools and hired Joel Klein to be the chancellor. Uh, They had 1.1 million children, largest in the nation. This was in 2001. The the No Child Left Behind had been approved, and it would now go into effect in 2002. So New York City was getting ready. Uh, Bloomberg and Klein advocated for a business model, to reform schools, and five years later, in 2001, they were awarded the broad prize for most improved urban school district. Some of the changes that Klein made were to break up, well, to close down the large schools and make them into small schools, uh, high schools, I'm talking about. You know, they stayed in the same building, when they had three floors with a different school on each level. This was a, a Bill Gates idea that he really promoted. Later, he dropped it because the results were not showing it had any impact. They really pushed uh, school choice. They gave schools letter grades, which had become a a new thing. But they found that very few of the parents took advantage of the the school choice. They wanted their children to stay in their neighborhoods, typically. So when New York City won this broad prize due to their incredible rise in scores, it turned out that the scores were not quite right. The New York City Department had lowered the passing score, so it looked like they were doing better. But when the federal NAP was given to the same kids, the results showed no increase. So mayoral control in this, in, in this way had not helped change the schools or improve the schools. 
In fact, in 2007, NAP uh, cited that schools with higher scores, with one of the, some of the highest, were Charlotte and Austin, Texas. They did not have at mayoral control. Two of the lowest were Chicago and Cleveland with mayoral control. Next, she goes on to an NCLB, which she describes as punitive accountability because you are punished. You, you all may know this, no child left behind. Requires annual testing of kids on math and reading. And the critical thing, and I can remember my husband in the audience was a teacher, retired a few years ago, but taught for 35 years. And when they said no child left behind, everybody, 100% of all students would be proficient. But 2014, ridiculous. I mean, it was an impossible goal because there is no way that, that some kids could be 100% if they have learning disabilities. It was impossible. And this is an aside, but you, know, you only see that in education. You don't see them saying, okay, climate control, we're going to be clean in the year 2020. They're not unrealistic goals, but yet when it comes to education, we give a goal like that. So I agree with Radish in that area. Totally unrealistic. As Ravitch notes, this impossible uh, requirement only impacted the teachers, the schools, and, of course, the students in those schools. Congress and foundations that were pushing this, they got off scot-free. So if some idea they had failed, so what? They just move on to the next school. They move on to the next thing they want to try. NAP showed that no, no or modest improvement uh, after NCLB was implemented and achievement gaps between black and the whites actually narrowed more before NCLB. So that wasn't helping at all. So, and NCLB at this time was not doing what was hoped to do. Next, she discusses school choice movement. And, of course, she also notes this has been around for a long time. In the 1950s and 60s, it actually was a way to continue segregation. In the 1990s, it became vouchers. It was a way for privately managed schools to get public school money. By 2001, there were 2,300 charters in the U.S. enrolling 500,000 students. By 2000, there were 4,600 charters with 1.4 million. 60% of those charters, more than half, were located in just five states. California, Arizona, Texas, Florida, Michigan, and Ohio. Charters have the luxury of admitting or denying admittance to students. Public schools cannot do that. There are some cases of successful charters as well as unsuccessful charters. She mentions KIPP as one, K-I-P-P, and it was started by, I believe, a Teach for America students that started this. But in general, the reports in NAAP testing show that charters do know better than public school. She also was very surprised to see that when Obama urged states to not limit charters, in fact, that, you know, said you will not be eligible for some federal funding, discretionary funds, unless you let charters into your state. This was surprising for a president who was elected on the promise of change, and here he was just taking up exactly what the, pro the Republicans had been promoting. Next, Ravitch went on to discuss accountability and AYP, um, adequate yearly progress. She stated the needs for tests. I mean, there is a need for tests. We all understand that. You've got to test what a child knows. It helps you figure out what they haven't learned. And the international tests as well, the NAP, do give us an idea of where our students stand, and that's important information we know. But testing experts reminded everyone that, that standard tests are not conclusive. There's a quote on page 152. Testing experts frequently remind school officials that standardized test scores should not be used in isolation to make consequential decisions about students, but only in conjunction with other measures of student performance, 
such as grades, class participation, homework, and teacher recommendations. Testing experts also warn that test scores should be used only for the purpose for which the test was designed. For example, a fifth-grade reading test measures fifth-grade reading and cannot reliably serve as a measure of the teacher's skill. The current focus on testing um, has resulted in schools coming up with ways to improve their scores, from teaching to the test, to cheating, to encouraging lower students to stay at home on test day, to transferring them to special ed classes. I was particularly surprised to read this, and I really did try and go and research and see things that she did state to, to make sure I could make sure that I thought there was some evidence to that. Well, anyway, so I was talking to one of my students who works in our office from Tullahoma, Tennessee, and she said, well, you know, that did happen to me. She said, I was, I was in high school, and she's a very bright girl, but she said, Tullahoma is superior in math and science. I mean, it's, duh, Space Institute. And so she had taken the test, and she had done well and was happy with the results, and then there was an announcement that they would be taking that test again. And she said, well, you know, she told her teacher, well, I think I'll just not take the test because I'm happy with what I did. But yet her friend was told, you need to be here to take the test. I mean, I'm sorry, you don't need to take the test. And she said her friend wasn't quite as good as she was. So she had actually seen this happen where kids that weren't as good were told to stay home just so the test scores would be better. Obviously, that's one incident. I'm not saying that's in general. But I was kind of surprised to hear a student, you know, tell me that this had happened to them. One chapter she talks about her favorite teacher, Mrs. Ratliff. This is probably my favorite just because it reminded me of, of some of my favorite teachers. But just like I asked you at the first to think about your favorite teacher and, and what made them stand out. Aunt Ravitch describes that her teacher on page 194. And it's, as we expand the rewards and compensation for teachers who boost scores and basic skills, will we honor those teachers who awaken in their students a passionate his, interest in history, science, the arts, literature, and foreign language. If we fail to attract and retain teachers like Ruby Ratliff, will we produce a better educated citizenry? Will our schools encourage innovative thinkers who advance society? It's not likely. The memories you have of school and those that urge you on, it's just a special thing, and it, it typically has nothing to do with taking a test. Ravitch also it talks about how teachers' unions have been demonized and that there's no evidence to support that teachers' unions have any impact on this, you know, whether we're good or bad at school. They just exist for the support of teachers. In fact, the South, where we have the lowest unionization of teachers, we have the lowest achieving scores. The Northeast, the highest union, have the tops. Again, Finland, top in the world, 100% unionized. Asia, no, they don't have all unions. But Again, there's no, fat, there's no evidence that supports it. it's good, good or bad to have unions, teacher unions. Okay, next uh, we talk about the Billionaires Club, which she terms the Billionaires Club, but it's wealthy foundations, the Broad Foundation, the Gates Foundation, the Walton Foundation, and how they have put immense amounts of money into education recently to, to try and improve it. Wonderful, wonderful goal, but the only problem is that, that they – you know, they, they don't suffer if things don't work, whereas, you know, what happens to our kids if these things don't work? So like the, the smaller high schools that Gates proposed, he's now moved off of that because evidence didn't show it, it helped. Now he has been promoting young teachers, I mean, large classrooms, younger teachers not requiring that much experience, even though the research shows that teachers 
really get going after their third year or so. So it takes a while for them to get in the swing of things. But she goes on to detail some of these groups, what they advocate, and, and her worry for public education, that this is just kind of the first step in uh, privatizing public education. In fact, my husband, again, had said things like that. And I thought, oh, you're overreacting. But after I read this, this section, um, it really kind of struck home. I just, it just had not occurred to me. Yeah, this isn't a word, especially, I guess, when you read more about the fact that um, the results aren't coming out and that some of these, um, that some of these proponents end up taking jobs that sell new technology or books or whatever to the school system after they leave that job. So it does, it, it worries me. It worries me as much as lobbyists in Congress as well. Finally, in the chapter on lessons learned, she does give some recommendations. Um, her first set of recommendations are schools will not improve if we do the following. If we continually reorganize them without regard to their purpose, mission, and needs. If we continue to allow politicians to make decisions professional educators should be making. There's no other profession I know of that this happens to. We focus so much on math and reading to detriment of other studies. We value only what tests can measure, and we should not rely on them to evaluate teachers and principals. The tests were designed to measure something, let them measure that. We should not continue to close neighborhood schools. And I know from my work in, in, with community schools and some of you are here, uh, that's evident. We need to um, not continue to rely on the powers, the power of the markets. There are winners and losers in the markets, and we can't afford that. We shouldn't allow charters or vouchers to siphon away the most motivated students and families from the public schools. And we shouldn't continue to treat students like widgets or schools like businesses. Schools need to share information. They need to learn from one another. They shouldn't be competing or operating out of fear. We should uh, not ignore the disadvantages brought on by poverty. I mean, it's a proven fact. Children in poverty need special resources. They can't learn if they're hungry or sick. They need preschool. They need extra help. They need medical care. The whole community schools movement in Knoxville is really focusing on that, and they're seeing results. In fact, a lot of our students in our learning community volunteer in those schools. Our learning community kids probably get more out of it than those schools because they come back with an appreciation for what is going on in schools today. Prior to that work in the schools, they have also studied No Child Left Behind, so they know what they're talking about. We should not allow schools to be blamed for all society's problems. We seem to do that. Now, what should we do? Number one, there's no silver bullet. We should be teaching our common culture and our heritage. We should be reading and discussing the ideas of Lincoln, Martin Luther King, W.E.D. Du Bois, Henry David Thoreau, Shakespeare, on and on. We should learn from those countries who do surpass us. What are they doing? How can we learn from them? We should be sure our students read and understand the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. They have to understand this in order to participate in our republic. We need to keep science and religion separate. It's not fair to either subject. We need to make history come alive and learn from where we have been. I am so strong that history teaches us a heck of a lot of lessons. We also should embrace the arts, physical education, health, foreign language, all of the other topics. 
you never know what topic is going to just strike a chord with that student and let them come alive. We also should work for a national curriculum that allows teachers the freedom to use that as a guide, but use methods they know will work with their teach whether they're students. Um, Ravage does that, and this I could not validate that Massachusetts has an excellent curriculum in every subject. And in 2007, their fourth graders placed second in science on the Tim's International uh, Assessment, and their eighth graders tied for first in science with Singapore, China, Taipei, and Japan and Korea. So maybe the Massachusetts legis- uh, curriculum is something we should be looking at. She added a chapter in this edition uh, where she kind of updates things. And in, in that, she just she said, NCLB is the worst legislation based on their definition of excess, which is a standardized test. This has resulted in an airing of the curriculum, gaming of the system, teaching to the test, and cheating. NCLB has closed neighborhood schools, and out of the war work have come pricey consultants. In fact, she said, no child left behind can also be no consultant left behind. Schools that were doing well have had to maintain that and to be sure they could let in any special education students, any ESL students, anybody who might bring their scores down. Ravage also talks about some of the more you know, recently heralded champions like Jeffrey Canada and the Harblem School. $200 million endowment the school has now. She acknowledges that he does, he does treat the whole child and the family, and, and that's wonderful. But he also can kick out a student who doesn't do well. I don't know that he's done that, but, but it, it is possible in a charter. Public schools cannot do that. Um, the miraculous early results, as I mentioned, that they found in New York City and Joe Klein are gone. He left, and he has a very lucrative job with Rupert Murdoch selling technology to education. They, uh, Mayor Bloomberg then brought in Kathy Black, who had no background in education. She lasted three months before she was replaced by the deputy mayor. And then she also points to the uh, cheating scandals of Michelle Rhee and in D.C. and the most recent in Atlanta. She also provided more evidence that charters do not perform any better than public schools. And this has been confirmed in NAEP scores from 2003, 5, 7, and 9. Finally, she addressed merit pay and and cited further studies ignored by the Obama administration that merit pay has no impact on improving student achievement. She cited a 2011 study on incentives and test-based accountability and another on the practices of other high-performing nations. And this is on page 282. In 2011, the National Research Council of the National Academies of Science, our nation's most prestigious research organization, released a nine-year study called Incentives and Test-Based Accountability. A 17-member panel of social scientists, including some of the foremost experts in the world, assessed the value of tying test scores to incentives, that is, carrots to sticks, rewards and punishments. The panel concluded that test-based accountability led to score inflation, to gaming the system, and to behaviors that undermined the value of the scores. They also reviewed the evidence and found that test-based incentives have a decidedly meager track record in boosting student achievement. Gone. Mark T- Tucker of the National Center of Education and the Economy reviewed the practices of high-performing nations. This is the international look, included that we are on the wrong track. He wrote that, wrote that the education strategies no, now most popular in the United States are conspicuous by their absence in the countries with the most successful education systems. Charter schools, vouchers, annual grade-by-grade testing and with multiple-choice standardized tests, 
closing, closing schools with low scores, evaluating teachers according to their student scores, all of that, Tucker writes, is relevant. What the top nations in the world have done, and we have not, is recruited the best prospective teachers, not for a few years like Teach for America, but for full and satisfying careers, teachers and administrators. Teachers in these nations are highly respected professionals with competitive compensation, high-quality professional training in elite institutions, and broad professional autonomy in the workplace. Each of these top nations has a broad national curriculum that includes arts, music, social sciences, and other subjects. Teachers master the expectations of the national curriculum, but it does not teach, tell teachers how to teach, but in general terms, what will be taught. Ravitch closes with kind of a brief overview of the many crises that have hit education. As I said, it seems like education is the only thing this happens to. Uh, from the 1930s, when schools were not meeting the, the needs of youth and the economy, as a result, the Civilian Conservation Corps and the National Youth Administration was born. Um, through the t- loss of the space race in 1957, was created the National Defense Act of 1958, and to the 1990s, when na- as a result, nations risk, and since the 1990s, the achievement gap. Um, now, after all these years of the test-based accountability, can we really say we are better off? Ravage urged schools reformers to step back, begin working in tandem with social reform. Children must have the basic necessities to learn. Poor children do worse than rich children. International tests point this out, too. American students are in the middle of the pack when all students are included in the results. But if you pick a school where 10 to 25 percent poverty level, we rank right up there at the top. Um, They tested as well as students in Korea, Finland, and Japan. Schools do need to improve, and students need to have access to the arts as well as basic skills. Standardized tests should be used sparingly, and the teaching profession must become more professional with high standards for entry. One other aspect of this that she does mention, but that that I have seen just because of my work, is the lack of knowledge of civics. And I, I know I worked with the Center for Civic Education before it was cut, Um, A few years ago, they did a wonderful job called Project Citizen, where kids learned how public policy works and where the um, We the People was another series, where they learned and they debated and were judged on their knowledge of the Constitution. I personally hope we can get back to more of a broad curriculum uh, as the history and, and understanding of civics is just critical if our nation is to continue to thrive, because without an educated citizenry, they cannot participate in our democracy. Democracy is dependent upon the people. So we have to have educated citizenry in order to thrive. If you all have questions or comments, anything? Uh, Excuse me. Does the rabbits have anything to say about the fact that our school calendars are driven by a long defunct uh, 19th century agricultural economy? In fact, that was one thing in the 1983 Nation at Risk report was the suggestion we lengthen the school day or lengthen the school year, and then that was dropped. She's very aware of that, I'm sure. I'm a career teacher. My horseback observation is that great teachers are quite rare and that uh, they don't get there by being incentivized by pay. Here's a simple position and see what anybody else wants to say. I think... Once you have a great teacher, you ought to pay them whatever it takes to retain them. Knox County is losing great teachers to surrounding counties who pay more. 
and I think that's, that's disastrous. As you pointed out, it's not so clear that incentives get better performance out of ordinary teachers. So uh, the money, money needs to be used strategically and thoughtfully, not mechanically. Yeah, and of course, on the other hand, that's how do you judge that? I guess my one thing about the teachers is I look back at my career and I went to a competitive college and to be honest, it was not seen as is a desirous career to get into. It's low paying. So I think it's not the incentive once they've gotten into it. It's what do we do to incentivize the brightest to get into the career? Um, Because right now when you look at your pay, actually I think for a starting salary, teachers are not terrible, but they don't go anywhere. And so I think that's the big difference is not – most teachers are not driven by the money once they're in the career, but we've got to get them the best and the brightest actually wanting to get in there. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, it's hard to teach. I am not a teacher, but, I I mean, I do do work with our students, and I teach a first-year studies course, but I am not a natural. My husband, I thought, was one of the best. I mean, he was a – he – kids in his class dissected the pig lungs in science, fifth-grade teacher. They launched – built and launched rockets. They did things. Nothing you can test in that. So um, I, I worked for a few years in Colorado, and one thing that I think that they did really well with salaries, if we're going to talk about salaries, um, here in, in Knox County, if you have a bachelor's, you go step up, and it's a little less than $1,000 probably every, every step. If you have a master's, it's maybe 1000 more each step, but it's really not worth it to get the extra education. And one of the great things, the, the climate and the culture of professionalism in Colorado was so different than here. And I think it was because you had steps until six years. Your steps were just like if you had a bachelor's, you take these steps up to six years. But it stopped at six years unless you were continuing education. So every 10 hours you got, you got a salary bump, college hours. And so and you didn't even have to have a master's, a Ph.D. You could just have a bachelor's plus 20, and your salary went up. And what this did was I didn't teach with – there was no one in my school who hadn't taken a class in the last year. They were continually taking college courses. And, of course, because this was happening, all the colleges were offering fabulous courses. And so I was working with teachers, a lady who was retiring, a math teacher. She was taking a course her retirement year. You know, I mean, it just, it's this culture of continuing your education and continuing to get better in your field. And it was just a different air of professionalism in, in, in the job I felt than I, that I felt here. But it was, I think it's something worth looking at. Yeah, um, my sister's a teacher in West Virginia. When she got her master's, she got a $9,000 increase. And this was 10 years ago. West Virginia actually funds their teachers extremely well. Much better. Tennessee is, is one of the worst. And Knoxville, amazingly, is one of the worst. I always wondered, and this is just purely a thought, because I, as I said, I did continuing education, and we, we were doing a paralegal program. Well, we were advised it's going to be hard to make that go because we have all this cheap labor over here at the university. We can get law students much cheaper. So I've always wondered how that impacts our salaries here because we do have this wealth coming out that we don't have to worry so much. Because Oak Ridge, Maryville, I mean, you don't have to go far for it to be so much better. Something that's not been mentioned yet that's part of this whole question, especially when we talk about 
paying teachers what they're worth is um, one of the biggest problems we have in Knox County, which is an aversion to um, paying higher taxes in order to pay our teachers what they're worth and to invest in our schools. And that seems to be, um, as a commissioner, one of the biggest problems that we run into is trying to get the community to buy into education to the realization that it's important to everyone in the community that our children are well-educated and that if we want a great education, we have to be willing to open up our pocketbooks and pay for it. That, again, is such a fact out there uh, that if we don't educate, we build bigger prisons. Bob, you can address, what is the, what is the rule, third grade? So, yeah, yeah third grade reading scores determine how many prison cells we get. Sweet. Hi, um, I was just wondering, if we don't hold teachers accountable for the students, then who do you think we should hold accountable? Do you think it's the parents' responsibility or the communities? Well, I'm on leave right now being president of the Teachers Union here in Knox County. I'm Sherry Morgan. Um, teachers don't mind accountability at all, but you were talking about the testing. We just last week finished up four tests in two weeks with these elementary school students. These kids are worn out. They really are. They're, they're not becoming lifelong learners, and that's one of my concerns. They're being tested so much. And teachers don't mind accountability at all. You can go, you can ask an experienced administrator. When I first started teaching, I was down in Georgia in one of the metro Atlanta systems, and one of the retired principals had come back to work with us because we had a shortage of a math teacher, and he came back. And he said he found out more when he walked around to teachers' classrooms and saw them teaching just impromptu, walking in, you can ask any teacher, any administrator in school. They know who the good teachers are. You can ask the kids. The kids will tell you, unless they're mad at you that day. But, you know, they know. And we don't mind being accountable at all. But using test scores right now, it's just we're, our, we're hurting our kids. We really are. Yeah, it, it's, it's just that using test scores only, that's the issue. Obviously, we need to account. And, I mean, you know, once if you have kids in school, I mean, you hear really fast and who you want to get your kid, what, what room you want to get them in. And it's true. I mean, just like any profession, you have good people and you have bad people. But try and help those bad teachers. Maybe they can improve. Maybe they can't. But at least let's try versus penalizing. And in Knox County Schools, we're not using test scores only. I mean, we have a, an approach that's encompassing of several aspects of teaching. Yeah, that, that's just what they're suggesting for the future is yeah. test the support our schools. Some of us have been working on that effort, you know, for over a year. And I was just curious if anyone here had any recommendations for the people who have been organizing this to uh, make a make a better impact. Particularly, I think around the issue that Amy raised, which was increasing funding um, to encourage citizens to embrace this notion that we need to in- improve our the teacher's compensation and also teacher quality, if that's what really makes a difference? As an elected official, I can tell you that what we heard last year during the budget debate was that um, we would see the yellow T-shirts at every meeting, that these people were not giving up, they were going to be there for the long term. Since last year's budget debate, I have yet to see a yellow T-shirt in the audience when we have a commission meeting. So you're doing great with the newsletters and, and with, you know, that. But we aren't seeing you at these public meetings. And so the attitude among people who are in charge of making decisions about taxes 
don't see the follow-through unless you're on the SOS email list. We don't see the follow-through. We don't. It looks like everybody gave up and went home. Of course, I know better. I know a lot of you personally, so I hear from you all the time. But that's been a real disappointment to me is that we have not seen the follow-through at the meetings. And I know from someone who has to be at every one of these meetings, they get really tedious sometimes, and it's not a fun way to spend the afternoon unless you're really into the nitty-gritty of policy um, or arguing. But we really need to see the yellow shirts at the meetings. That's critical to keep the decision-makers on their toes that you want a better investment in education. I hate to see it when the thing comes out, we're not going to raise taxes. I mean, everything else is going up. Why should we not? I am totally supportive of, and I live in the city and pay city and county taxes, but it's worth it to have a great public library and to keep good, better and better schools. So I really hate that when it's a, a stamp of pride that we're going to lower taxes or we're not going to raise them. I mean, everything costs more. We pay a heck of a lot for cable and all that stuff, so why not? And I just want to invite if there are any anybody in this room that would like to get more engaged in this. And I think the support our schools, I don't know of any other group that we could focus around. And I think we ought to use that, what already exists, and build on it. When I was on county commission in 70 to 80, our school system was run out of a little building on Hill Street by Mildred Door. And now it's all run out of the Andrew Johnson much bigger building. But I've wondered for a long time, are we over-organized for schools? I mean, it's just a lot of bureaucracy there that didn't used to exist. Yeah. And, of course, it has changed, particularly after the nation at risk, because back then, you know, kids with disabilities, handicapped, they were not in schools. That takes a heck of a lot of, of money. And I don't know the exact amounts, but it does cost a lot, which, of course, means that you've got to have more organizations to deal with all those federal rules and mandates and so on. Well, and I, and I think to address what, you, what you've said, I mean, when you look at the school systems that continue to get praise, like Oak Ridge and Maryville, they're tiny. If you're making decisions for five schools, it's very easy to figure out the problem. We have 87, 88 schools, and they're very diverse. I mean, we have very affluent schools. We have very rural schools. We have very urban schools. Yet we're asking to make policies that, deal across the board with all of those and that's what I struggle with is one of the innate problems I see with the Knox County school system is just trying to run such a big system. Um, You can make very intentional decisions when you have one high school, two middle schools and five elementary schools feeding into it. So I think but it's not going to change in Knox County I mean if anything our county is growing we need more schools, that type of thing but also I think to get back to the subject of the school and I really think what um, Bob has done with the the community schools is and, and really just different efforts like that is it does go back when you look at these studies the affluent kids are doing fine I mean you look in Knox County I mean they, they had the top 20 scholars and I hate to say it was sad they were all from West Knoxville schools every single one of them it's affluent it's not the teachers it, we talk about the failing schooling system it's not failing schools it's failing home lives, and that's what they're trying to deal with. And that's what we really have to get back to instead of keep thinking the schools are going to fix everything and the teachers are going to fix everything. So, I mean, I think that's what yeah. that addresses. We keep wanting to say, why are the teachers the problem? Why are the principals the problem? Why is the big A.J. building right. the problem? 
Right. They're doing great by some of these kids. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, because now they have to ward off terrorists. I, I believe poverty is the yes. problem. And honestly, I, yeah. I'll even say I don't even think so much as poverty. It is an, a, it's an aspiration for education. There are people that are poor, but they're educated. And you see that with – and I think you see it with the immigrant population – a lot of them are very poor, but they have that aspiration for their children, and that makes a difference. It's they, the people that can't dream mm-hmm. for their children. They didn't have that background. They don't have that dream for their children, and they don't instill it in their children. So the question is, what do we do? Well, I think we've got to start thinking systemically instead of blaming the victim and looking at individuals. I think schools have to come to grips with the fact that education is more than the problem of schools. So you need to get your corrections, your mental health people, your welfare people, and they need to all work together. It's like that's some sort of alien concept. The second thing I think we have to come to grips with when you start, and be thinking about Rodriguez v. Texas because you know it better than I do. That particular case basically says that the Constitution does not say that education is a right guaranteed, and the court voted in the mid-'70s, five to four, um, to maintain funding as it was in Texas. So don't fall back on that one. People do, but it, 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 the court just didn't rule in that direction. So I think if we can begin to think ecologically, holistically, and bringing people together. The other thing when you, when you start looking at teachers, teachers can't do it by themselves. I think teachers are incredible people. Keep this in mind. One half of all teachers quit in the first five years. That has nothing to do with money. I don't think it has anything to do with the kids. It has to do with organizational life that drives them nuts. And I think we have to fix that. So one of the places that I would say we should look is the university. Not the College of Education, Health, and Human Science. The whole university. It's an anchor institution. It's not going anywhere. It should have a commitment to this community And I think that there are people over there that you ought to embarrass if you want to know the truth. And you could start with Susan Martin and Jimmy Cheek. They're our top two officers. And say, what are you doing to make education better in Tennessee? Not just East or Knoxville or whatever, but what are we doing? Now, we are working on this. If any of you know Randy Boyd, there's a warrior. Okay? Well, what's Randy's job other than to make fences for dogs? To change the culture of the state in terms of its views on higher education. Not an easy task. So I'd say, you know, we need to support him. We need to to get involved. Go to your kids' schools. Um, And poverty, racism, sexism, all that stuff, it's the real deal. So we don't bury our head in the sand. Okay, well, thank you all for coming. And thank you, Dr. Dylan Brown. Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.